Good morning. Let me add my welcome to the ones you've already received this far. And to our friends who are on vacation or you're ill, like I know at least one person, for whatever reason you're joining us online, it's good to be together with you as well. I'm Larry Zyman, one of the pastors here, and I will be filling a few slots that are now open as a result of Pastor Tim Prince's sabbatical that he's on as he and his family continue the process of grieving and figuring out the new life without Ben. My hope today is that I will be of help to you in your faith journey. Today we continue in our series called Talking to God, and I start with a story. There were two men in a certain city. The one was very rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had only one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him, and like a ch- his, with his children, it was like a daughter to him. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup, and lie in his arms. Well, one day, a visitor came to visit the rich man, and he chose not to use hospitality out of his flocks and herds, but took the one little lamb from the poor man and used it to serve his guest. King David was told this story by a prophet named Nathan. And when he heard that, he got righteously angry. And it reads, then David's anger kindled against the man, and he said, this man deserves to die, and he should restore fourfold for what he had done, and because he showed no pity. Well, the story was told to King David in 2 Samuel 12. It's a story of injustice and cruelty that causes anger to swell up inside of you, which is exactly the king's just response. And as ruler over the people of Israel, he said the rich man should pay reparations and his life should be considered on the line. Imagine his shock that when the prophet turns to him and says to the king, you're the rich man. You're the rich man. This whole story, it was a parable about David, designed to confront the king for his heinous acts. Imagine the emotional whiplash with David displaying anger, righteous anger, at the rich man only to have the prophet look him in the eye and turn it on him. The story of David's downfall is vividly displayed in the previous chapter, 2 Samuel 11. In it, instead of going out with his troops as the commander-in-chief should, he decided to stay home. And he was up on the roof, and looking out, he noticed a very beautiful woman. Well, using his influence, he managed to have his way with her. And I'm using uh, some restrained language here as we have children in the house. But after having his way and finding out now there's a baby on the way, he remembers that the woman he violated was married to one of his soldiers. So he orders the husband home on leave, thinking, okay, Well, he'll come home, he'll act married, we'll cover up my act, and the baby will be considered his. An easy fix. Had a setback, another setback. And that as this soldier had so much integrity that he wouldn't partake in things that his fellow soldiers couldn't at, so he refrained from acting married. So, David now sends 
word to one of his leaders, brings him in and says, I want you to take this man, put him in an impossible fighting situation so that he's killed. And it happens. And he's dead. And the husband's no longer in the picture. The king now takes the woman into his house and with these multiple abuses of powers have effectively covered up things, he's good to go. Until the prophet tells the story and exposes a menu of sins and abuses. The Bible doesn't give us some of the information I would have liked at that time. I'd like to know, did he confront him one-on-one or is it in front of a group? That would make a difference to me. One thing we do know, that when he was confronted, his response was immediate, that I have sinned against the Lord. After the prophet tells the story to the king and declares the fallout, which is severe for his acts, so he wasn't able to bypass you know, some of the results of his behavior, he leaves. And as king of Israel, David, who was supposed to lead his people in a manner that honored God and his word, in this helpless state of life, he broke three of the command, Ten Commandments. He coveted his neighbor's wife, he committed adultery, and he murdered. The story found in 2 Samuel would probably do pretty well as a movie or a novel, except it's not fiction. This really happened. David's passions, like a campfire out of control, led to regrettable acts and a cover-up that took place in a palace that was supposed to be inhabited by a righteous ruler. Today, we consider the life of a man at the pinnacle of power who could have whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, however he wanted it. And he got it, and he thought he got away with it. But David was reminded that there was a king higher than this king. There was another king that that king David was supposed to answer to. And David ignored that greater king as he pursued his own pleasures and passions at the expense of others and then abused his position to further cover up things. How do you talk to God, if at all, when you're guilty, when you've blown it? when you feel that guilt upon yourself and your attempt to put your guilt behind you is no more avoidable than a shadow on a totally sunny day. How do you respond? We have the benefit in Scripture of seeing David's response to the backside of being exposed. We don't find the response of the modern politician or athlete who says, well, if I offended one, I'm sorry, you know, that non-apology apology. Or the media star who, after a tweet and then gets called out by the shame police, finds a way to reframe their thoughts after kissing the ring of those who are threatening them with cancellation. In David, we see that the guilty humble themselves before God when the guilty humble themselves before God. And it's coupled with a sober self-assessment. There's great reason for hope. Great reason for hope. And one reason I'm comfortable standing before you today is I know this hope, not as one who has all together, but as one who has known guilt after guilt after guilt. I stand before you today as a sinner, a fellow struggler who at the same time is full of hope. As a matter of fact, I wondered, you know, when some of these preaching opportunities came forward that the elders sat around and said, well, who are we going to have to talk about confession of sin? Oh, Larry, he's a good sinner. 
You're probably like, we know where to go with this. All right. So after we sin, whether it be a white lie or a murder, we can choose our own path, trusting our own strength and wisdom, or we can choose to enter a conversation with God on his terms. Sober assessment and a humble posture before God can lead to authentic hope, even renewal. So with that, please join me in reading Psalm 51. It's found on page 474 on the Bibles in front of you, or if you brought your own, bring it. Get that pen ready to underline and make marks, or if you got a mobile device, please do that. This is now the third time I'm speaking in Psalm 51 in my time here, and I find new things and new help each time. Again, we're on page 474. Reading Psalm 51, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and be blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how can we relate to God? if we've blown it, when we realize that we are guilty, what might that conversation look like? David models two attributes for us here in Psalm 51 that I want us to camp on a bit today in the hopes when it's brought into right relationship with God will serve well those who are feeling guilty. The first attribute David displays is a humble posture before God. A humble posture before God. After being rebuked by Nathan, the king is no longer seeing him as an independent agent, free to do what he wishes, but he is now as a king, answerable to another king. And he starts out of the block asking for mercy. He realizes he's in God's debt. 
He is seeing the vileness for his acts. In verse 2, there's a plea for washing and cleansing. He comes as a beggar, humbly requesting what he does not deserve, which is mercy. Verse 4 might be a bit confusing for those who are well acquainted with the stories in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. He says to God, David does, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Think about this. See if we can get this straight. So first of all, David forsakes his army by not going out with them as the commander-in-chief he was. He then takes sexual liberty with another man's wife, violating her and what she's supposed to be standing for in order to get what he wants. Then he manipulates her husband in order to cover up his sin. And when that doesn't work, he gets involved with one of his commanders to put that guy in a position to die. And you see, I've run out of fingers already how much David's done. And he sinned against his nation by using his position for self-serving means and not for service of the people. And then David says, against you, you only have I sinned? Who hasn't David sinned against? He sinned against absolutely everyone. His humble posture before God recognizes first and foremost he's answerable to God. And when our relationship with God has supremacy in our life and we mess up, we can get realigned and find our right place under God. Jesus puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. Even when you sin, especially when you sin, seek first the kingdom of God. Humble yourself before God. When one is broken in spirit, contrite and humbled under the righteous gaze of God, under the high and holy one who inhabits eternity, when the prop of self-sufficiency is cast off, there's an exposure of the heart that happens that can be terrifying because you're exposed and vulnerable without any recourse except mercy. Mercy. A humble posture before God is our only sane approach and talking to God in our guilt. The second attribute that David displays is a sober self-assessment. He no longer sees himself as the entitled king, but as a flawed human. His approach toward God is not cavalier or tried. He doesn't say, oh, my bad, God, my bad. He uses three different words to describe what he did. Transgression, he uses in verse 2. These are found in 2 and 3. Transgression is a word that talks about rebellion against an authority. Iniquity is the twisting of moral standards. And the third word, sins, is, implies avoiding or missing the mark of a divinely appointed goal. So what David didn't do here is not he didn't commit a blunder. He rebelled. He twisted reality to serve his own means, and he missed the mark set for him by God. In the world of Alcoholics Anonymous, the fourth step in pursuing the forsaking the God of alcohol is that each person take a searching and fearless moral inventory of themselves. This is part of the posture that God's looking for. Having humbled ourselves before God, getting realigned before him, 
we begin to see things as they are, and our sin pops out, stands out in high definition. One of the things you may find is this is going on in your heart. You're going to have insight into the sin of people around you as well, and I would encourage you, don't worry about them. Deal with your own stuff. In verse 5, David knows that he was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did his parents conceive him. And he's not saying that the God-ordained act of procreation is sinful or wrong. No, it's God's perfect design. It's a beautiful thing. What he's saying is those creatures who engage in those acts, people like me, who are, are born into sin and they add to it in their own lives. So we are both receivers of sins and accelerators of sin. The doctrine of original sin states that because of our first parents, Adam and Eve's sin, all of creation has fallen. Not just us, all of creation has fallen. We are all born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature and unable to keep God's law. Adam's sin. All of humanity is broken since that time, and many of the choices we make, certainly many of the choices I made, add to that brokenness. But David's not in a blame game. He's not throwing his parents under the bus or under the camel, I guess, in his case. All right? He isn't doing that with their behavior. David recognizes that the heart of his sin problem is a problem of his heart. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. This is where the battle lies. Verse 6 says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The origin of his transgression, his sin, his iniquity, or whatever term you would use to talk about the internal realm of desires, this battle in the internal realm, reflecting disordered loves in one's life, loving the greater things less, loving the lesser things more. And this is part of the beauty. This is part of the beauty of the Bible as God's story for his people unfolds. David is one of many examples of leaders who did some pretty foolish things, and they were all recorded for our benefit. How different things are today. How many leaders in our culture ever come forth, come forth with uh, saying anything about their mistakes or their weaknesses? I don't know if you've experienced this yet, but anybody else's mailbox telling you that there is a primary election coming up soon? Right? All these cardboardish type things assaulting our mailboxes? Well, let's pretend today that Larry Zyman's running for Congress, okay? Would I ever have, when you pop on your YouTube channel, see this pop up first? Larry Zyman running for Congress. He stole money from his parents. He spanked his kids when he should not have. He showed disregard to others while driving. He made stupid financial decisions. Vote Zyman, August 9th. Right. No, you don't do that. You understandably come forward sharing your strengths. All right? Unfortunately, all those other things are true. <laughs> all right? Yet time after time, the Bible shows the blemishes and flaws of its people because in the end, there's one hero. And it's not David. And folks, it's none of us either. But that hero is enough. And what David models for broken humanity is we no longer have to hide our sin. He even wrote things down for others to see. Samuel did that so he could see it. 
I don't know about you, but I've been advised a few times when I'm in tense situations not to text people, not to email, because what's it's out there, it's, it's there. It's not going to go away. Right. There's no hiding here. None. The acknowledgement of wrongdoing, which is so resistant in our culture, is part of the biblical path to freedom. There is a way that seems right to us, Proverbs says, but its end is the way of death. We can be honest about our sin and failing, thankfully. And David, having been rebuked by the prophet, shows us how we can talk to God. God's not looking for us to earn our way back through religious exploits. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise, verse 17 says. What gets God's attention is not our efforts, but humble dependence. No room for bravado or pride. When we approach this mountain that is God, and when bravado is discarded and pride forsaken, beauty can now break in. That brings me to my third point, and the good news. Having humbled ourselves before God and having made a sober self-assessment, recognizing the horror that is our sin, one would think the last place David would want to be is in the presence of a holy God who is committed to vindicating his character and punishing all sin. But, having been rebuked by the prophet of God, he turns in the direction of God. The third point is that when he turned to God in his guilt, he turned there because he trusted in God's character. That's what he was trusting in. I remember when I was a child, if I did something wrong, I would keep my distance from my parents if I did something from them. And not that I feared for them physically much, but there was just this sense it was in my best interest to keep my interest. I wasn't going to go up to my dad and say, hey, dad, got five bucks, or hey, let's go out and play catch. I would just keep my distance. But look at what David does. He comes out asking for many things. Washing and cleansing in verse 2. Purging and washing in verse 7. Verse seven. He goes on to ask for joy and gladness, blotting out iniquities, a clean heart, a right spirit, and on and on and on. Where does he get this inclination, this chutzpah, to come with these requests? If I had his recent track record, I would have been hiding behind the royal throne and hoping no one saw me. But instead, David's approaching God and he's asking God. His appeal is in the direction of God's character. The mercy that he pursues is not mercy earned. Mercy by definition is not getting what we rightly deserve. And mercy is certainly the preferred alternative to what should be coming. Look at verse 1. Here's his appeal. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Having humbled himself before God, having made the sober self-assessment, David does not try to pull himself up by his bootstraps. He appeals to God's godness. He appeals to God's character. And there is hope for mercy. The hope is found in God's steadfast love. You've heard us use the word here before, chesed, chesed. 
right? It's a word that's kind of hard to translate into English, but commentators speak of hesed as a term depicting God's covenant loyalty, his inability, unwillingness to break his promises. And David appeals to that character of God rooted in the covenant of promises made to his people. And the the meaning and the basis for requesting mercy is in keeping with who God is, not in keeping with who David was. One commentator puts it this way, the psalm at once, so at the very beginning of verse 1, at once begins grasping the character of God as the sole ground for hope. It's all that's needed is God's character. How do you talk to God when you're guilty, if at all? It's going to depend on what your hope's grounded in. Is it grounded in yourself? Is it grounded in your pedigree? Or is it in God? Is it grounded in your efforts or God's covenantal loyalty? What are you resting in? What are you hoping in? When you've humbled yourself before a holy God, when you've made a sober assessment of yourself and you find yourself lacking, where will you turn? The prophet says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. How can we talk to God when we're guilty? We do so out of a humble posture before him. We do so having made a sober self-assessment. And thirdly, we appeal to nothing, absolutely nothing, but God's character. So I want to help you this morning by taking some actions of application right now. I want you to make yourself comfortable. Take a deep breath. Close your eyes. Bow your head. We're spending a little time in prayer now, okay? Okay. So, make yourself comfortable. Humble yourself before God right now. Acknowledge his greatness, his right to rule over all, especially over you. Thank him for his greatness and ask for the desire to live under it. Humble yourself under his mighty hand that he might lift you up. Some of you may not be used to talking to God. You might want to talk in this manner. God, I've not placed myself under your, right, under your leadership. I give you control of my life for you to show me your way. Or pray it in your own way. Simply be honest. God will sort it out. Perhaps you're feeling the weight of guilt 
and alienation from God today? Is there something from this week, your actions or attitudes, that have created a gap for you? Is there something in a relationship that you've mistreated someone in a way definitely against God's purposes? Talk to God. Assess, assess the state of your heart right now. He desires truth in the inward part. Confess your sins, your disregard for others in keeping with God's plan for you. Acknowledge that your desires have taken precedence over God's desires. You might pray something like, God, my sin is very real to me right now. How much more to you? I give up my self-centered ambitions and ask you to forgive me of my guilt. I want to live in the freedom you have for me. Talk to him. Now turn to the God of Hesed, of covenant loyalty. Flee to him, not from him. He's ready to receive and abundantly pardon. Be honest, be fearless, be hopeful. Oh God, as we've given, as we've humbled ourselves and confessed our sins, will you cause the hope that is ours, not in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus, to inform us, to transform us, to make us alive to you and your purposes, to one another, to our neighbors. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The length that God went to to make mercy available for us is simply stunning. Nothing less than stunning. A covenant is an agreement that's made between two parties. And God and his people entered covenants multiple times. Our problem is we kept and continued to break the covenant. We did not keep our end of the bargain. So this is what God did. He kept both ends of the agreement. Both ends. I want you to take into your hands the elements for communion that you grabbed when you went in today. If you don't have one, there's ushers in the back who can hand one to you. I want you to take out a little wafer. that represents the body of Christ that was given for his people. Christ offered himself on the trees so that you could avoid judgment by him becoming the judged on your behalf. This is the stunning mercy of God. Judgment taken on by Jesus for you resulting in mercy for us. Eat it, and when you do, remember him.
The Gospel of Luke reminds us that after he had eaten, he took a cup. And he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, both ends of the deal poured out in my blood. Covenantal love fulfilled for us what we would not, what we could not, what we did not was done on our behalf. Behold, covenantal love poured out for you. Drink, sinners, in Christ, mercy is yours. And as you do, remember him. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. Let's continue God's work in us by standing and singing, please. <laughs>